text for this morning's sermon is Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. We're looking at Luke 18, 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Uh, Father, I ask that you grant us spiritual growth this morning that you would help us see you for who you really are, see Christ in all of his power. Father, I pray that we would be strengthened in prayer. Father, that our eyes would be set on Christ's return. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If I were to ask the question, what is the mark of a true Christian? It probably wouldn't be a fair question because there's many marks of a Christian, but if we were going to look for what are some of the fundamental marks of not just someone who professes faith in Christ, but someone who's been supernaturally born again, I suppose some might say love. They will know us by our love. Others might say, well, it's the true profession. They'll know us when we get the gospel right. That one might not be as good since Christ says there will be many on that day that say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I never knew you. Some might say, well, it's those who love Scripture. Yet Jesus told the Pharisees that you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you'll find eternal life, and it's they that point to me. I would argue that at least one of the most fundamental ways you can discern a true Christian, at least a healthy Christian, because not all of us who are saved are healthy, 
are those who pray and long for his return and therefore possess hope. And those who possess hope have a certain type of attitude, have a certain sort of saltiness to their life. The topic of prayer is one of those topics that almost no one's going to give themselves a 10 on. How proud are you of your prayer life? How proud of you are, are you of the time you spend longing for Christ to return? If we were going to look through the New Testament and say, show me a theme of what Christians are like, this is the theme we would see. Those who are longing for the return of Christ. And so ask yourself this morning, be honest with yourself. Everybody thinks they're the good ones. Be honest with yourself. What is your heart longing for? I'm going to give you a few examples just as a way of intro. And you don't have to spend time jotting down all these verses. They're in your notes. I just want you to listen. Listen to the writer of the Hebrews. But as it is, this is Hebrews 9.26, he, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Who's saved? You might ask the writer of the Hebrews. Those who are eagerly waiting for the return of Christ. And then Hebrews 10.36, he tells Christians, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Well, who would shrink back at the coming of Christ but the one who says, uh-oh, rather than the one that's been leaning into it and looking for him and longing for him? How did Peter say it? First Peter 1.13 Therefore, prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christian, prepare your minds for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. Set all your hope on the grace that will be brought to you when Christ returns. Remember that in 1 Peter? 
which means if you put 1% of your hope down in this world and not anchored in the coming of Christ, you will be an anxious soul in turmoil. Because God has called you and I to put all of our hope in the coming Christ. What part of this world will stay the same? What part of this world can anchor your soul? The anchor of your soul is at the right hand of the Father, as Scott preached last week. It's the only place our soul can find rest. Or 1 Peter 1.20, when Peter says this, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You're to see the resurrected Christ so that your hope would be in resurrection. Or how about 2 Peter 3.11? Since all these things are thus to be destroyed, the whole universe... Since all are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God? That's the Christian. We're to be those who are waiting for that day when Christ will come because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. It was the same for Paul. Galatians 6.14 But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What's a Christian look like? The world has been crucified to me. Paul says, my love and my hope and my longings and my desires used to be in this world, but no more. I've been crucified to the world. And then he says, and the world is crucified to me. It's his new lot in life. This world is against him. But he's been crucified to the world once he saw Christ. Once he came to know Christ. And then he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. So the one who's crucified to the world, peace and mercy. Your lot is secured. Here's how he says it in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I count all that I used to count as gain, loss, once I knew Christ. And then he says, 
For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish, as manure, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Well, Paul, what's the longing of your heart? Listen to him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection, that I may share in His sufferings and become like Him in His death. What are you living for, Paul? Suffering that's going to lead to resurrection. The same power of resurrection of Christ is where my eyes are set. That's where my hope is. Or 2 Timothy 4, where Paul says, I fought the good fight at the, this at the end of his life. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who loved His appearing. That's who will be rewarded. Those who love the appearing of Christ. Or Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from, the, from lawlessness and purify for Himself a people for His own possession that are zealous for good works. Our 1 Thessalonians 1.9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn from God to idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His, His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Our 1 Corinthians 16.22 If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. You see how He juxtaposes the non-believer from the believer, those who have no love for Him, no longing for Him, let them be a curse. But what does Paul say? Come, Lord Jesus. This is why Paul could say to be apart from the body and present with the Lord is far better. It's far better. Here's how John said it, 1 John 2.28, And now little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Oh, little children, abide in Him. Personally, anchoring the hope of your soul in Christ so that when He comes out of heaven, you say, I knew it. I knew it. That's where my hope's been. That's where my mind has been. May the Lord grant us hearts that will not give up 
in setting our hope in the only place where there is truly hope. And how does the Bible end? Revelation 22.20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Those are Jesus' words. And John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Verse 17, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit and the Bride, that's the church, say, come. That's what Christians say. Come. And let the one who hears say, come. All non-believers, anchor your hope in the only place there is hope. Every other place you look for hope will disappoint Be those who say, come, Lord Jesus. It's natural that we long for Him as believers when we look at this world. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. That doesn't mean Christ isn't ruling over this whole universe, but God has given Satan a leash. And right now, what you see is the system of the world that is passing away. And so we long for a day when it'll be different. Do you long for justice? Do you long for the day when right is done? Do we not long for it? Psalm 6011 has just been so strengthening to my soul the last few weeks as I look at this culture that is in rebellion to God and His Word. And the opportunity for despair comes upon me. And then I read Psalm 60 in my devotions and it says this, O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. Do you know that, Christian? That in vain is the salvation of man? There's no hope in it? Do you run after the salvation of man as you look at this culture? Where's your hope set? Did you know that the Scriptures promise all believers that we shall do valiantly with the Lord? Did you know that your soul will be secured with Him? What do we see in our culture? But we see warring tribes. We don't see justice. We see warring tribes. And each tribe has a narrative. And here's how the tribes work. The opposing tribes have a story. And as they listen to what's supposedly going on in the world, whatever fits their story, they talk about. They hold up as true. Whatever doesn't 
fit their narrative. They just kind of ignore it and shuffle it under the rug. These tribes take different names. I suppose there's thousands of them, but just look at the news stations. Look at all the different news stations. They're just tribes. None of them are looking for justice. They're all looking for stories to sell to those in their tribe. If you think you can go to the news and find unbiased facts so that you can think justly, well then you're naive. It's not true. The tribes have names. Blue lives matter. Black lives matter. And both groups are going to listen to the stories they want to hear and ignore the stories they don't want to hear. But my question is this, Christian. If you look for salvation with man and in one of these tribes, it's a vain effort. With God we shall do valiantly. And I'm here to tell you something. God sits on a throne of justice and truth. Did you know that? God doesn't look down and say, oh good, you're in a good tribe. I'm so happy for you. Because you can be in what you think is a good tribe with a rotten heart and you don't even feel conviction over it. Because you've forgotten who God is. You've forgotten what justice is. It was the same way in Jesus' day. The Pharisees were the good tribe. They loved the Word of God. They were the conservative ones that believed all the Bible. The Sadducees were the liberals. But Jesus was upset with them because He knew their hearts. He knew they weren't just. He knew they were looking for salvation not in God, but in man's system and what man's system could provide for them. Leviticus 19.15 says this. Listen to this carefully. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You can't be of the tribe of the poor or you can't be of the tribe of the rich. In righteousness you should judge. If the poor person doesn't have truth with them, then judge with the rich. Even if the world mocks you for that or vice versa. When you stand with God, the world is crucified to you. You have enemies from every tribe. If you demand truth and you're after what God's after, justice, then you're going to be on an island and you're not going to find your home in one of these things. We're of the tribe of Christ. And how did Christ pray for you right before He ascended into heaven? Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. We're all guilty. 
And you say, well, what's this have to do with our text? Well, we're going to see an unrighteous judge. We're going to see a wicked judge. It has an interesting way of bringing about justice. The charge of this sermon is do not lose heart. Pray for Christ's return. Look at verse 1 of Luke 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now, Paul says, pray without ceasing, but this is different. This parable that Jesus told is in the context of what he's just said in chapter 17. He's just told them about suffering and all that's going to happen before Christ's return. And he's specifically telling them to pray for the return of Christ and not to lose heart. This is one of those examples where Jesus gives us the main point in the first verse, or, or Luke does. He told them the parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now this section of Scripture ends with what it looks like when that doesn't happen. Look at the end of verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Why is Jesus telling this parable? He knows suffering's coming. He knows injustice is coming upon His people. And He doesn't want them to lose sight of the facts and of the one who is in control. And so, as we get ourselves into the context, if you remember in Luke 17.22, He said to His disciples, the days are coming when you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you'll not see it. We live there. We live in the days of injustice. And when we long to see one of the days of the coming of the Son of Man when injustice is no more. Or in verse 32 of chapter 17, when he says, Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but ever loses his life will keep it. Lot's wife hung on. She anchored her soul down here in this world. And he who seeks to put your hope down here rather than in Christ will lose it. And so it's in this context that he tells this parable. Neglect of prayer is a sign of spiritual sickness. It is the result of at least two fundamental spiritual diseases. If you see lack of prayer in your life, there's at least two major sicknesses of the soul that must be dealt with. The first one is this. We forget who God is. 
The person who isn't praying has forgotten who God is. In the beginning, God created and everything else is created. When you go to the creation rather than the creator, you've forgotten God. You've forgotten the one who created you. Psalm 910 says this, those who know your name put their trust in you. To know someone's name means to know that person personally. Those who know your name put their trust in you. Those who know God pray to God. Those who casually know God put their trust somewhere else. Put their hopes somewhere else. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please Him. For whoever should draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Two parts to saving faith. I believe He exists and I believe He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. Have you forgotten who God is? If you know that He's a rewarder for those who draw near to Him, guess what we do? We draw near to Him. We seek Him. Have you forgotten that God is good? That's what happened to Israel. That's why the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2, beginning in verse 5, had to say this to Israel. Ask this question. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? God says, what, what, where was my fault that you left me and went after worthlessness? And then he says, they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt? You see, they didn't know him that way. So they didn't pray that way. And then he says in verse 8, the priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who, those who handled the law, they didn't know me. The shepherds transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by Baal. They forgot who God was. And then he says in verse 10 of Jeremiah 2, for cross to the coast of Cyprus and sea and to Kedar and examine with care. See if there's any such thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? He says, you go see if those other nations have changed their idols. They haven't. Those will stay rooted in those nations. But here's what my people's done, God says. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And then he says, be appalled, O heavens. Be, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Israel's problem was, is they have the living God like a living fountain, and they're thirsty. They're thirsting to death. And they look at this over here, and they taste it, and they say, no, I'm going to go over to this broken well over here that has no water in it. I'd rather lap at the dust over here. And Jeremiah says, that's evil. Those are people that have forgotten who God is. The first sickness when you see lack of prayer in your life is that you've forgotten God. 
Get out the attributes of God and start studying. Start thinking. Start anchoring your hope in God. And second, we forget who we are. We forget who we are. We begin to think, I'm okay on my own. I remember in 1998, Randall Cunningham was the quarterback for the Vikings and they had the best offense in history at that point. And Randall Cunningham was a Christian and I remember they did an interview with his wife. And here's what she said about him. She said, if you want to know Randall, you need to understand he's a man of faith. He rolls out of bed and lands on his knees because he knows who God is. As though to get out of bed and start walking is to be in pride. We forget who we are when we don't pray. Paul Washer says your problem is not that you're too weak, but that you have no idea how weak you are. When we don't pray, we think great things about what we can accomplish on our own. Isaiah 2.22 says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath for what account is he? Which the literal way to take that is, you want to know what a man is? It's someone standing there with one God-given breath in his nose. Hmm. He lets the breath out. Guess what? He's dependent on the next one from God. That's who man is. No wonder finding your salvation in man is vain. Stop regarding man. The Scripture tells us. And then in chapter 40 of Isaiah, he says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. We're weak. And we'll pray when we realize we're weak and we remember who He is. Do you realize that Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, is praying the whole time. There's only one thing the disciples ever asked Him to teach them about. And the way Paul Washer said this is he said, they didn't come and say, teach us to preach. They didn't come and say, teach us how to do miracles. They didn't come and say, teach us. But they did say, teach us how to pray. Because Christ had to live His life. He's the Son of God, but He's really man in the power of the Spirit, in prayer. How much more must we recognize our weakness and pray and long for the coming of Christ? And so here's the parable he tells. In verse 2 he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. This is the most wicked man on the face of the earth. I, I don't fear God. And I don't respect man. Respect is the word intrepo. It carries the idea, able to be put to shame. Someone might be normal 
and function normal in society if you can be shamed by the people. (laughs) But if you have a man who doesn't fear God and has no shame among people, this is the most wicked man on the face of the earth. This is the most dangerous judge. It's the extreme example. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't respect man. What's the greatest commandment? Love God. What's the second? Love man. Love your neighbor. This judge wasn't either of those. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now the courts in those days were courts of men. If any woman had any man in her life, you sent the man to go get justice on your behalf. The fact that the widow herself goes to court means that she's totally destitute. She has nobody. She doesn't have a son. She doesn't have an uncle. She doesn't have a guy that's a friend that can plead her case. She is totally hopeless. And she kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. Evidently, she's been wronged. Now, widows are seen all throughout the Scriptures. Psalm 68.5 says, God is the father of the fatherless. The protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Psalm 146.9 Exodus 22.22 says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Isaiah 1.23 says, Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. You see, to give justice to the widow doesn't do any good because the widow can't do anything for the judge. God hates injustice. God hates injustice. And here's a widow and here's a wicked judge who could give two rips about this woman. And we read in verse 4, for while he refused, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man. So now he's bragging about his wickedness. (laughs) He's the one declaring his rebellion against God and man. Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, literally keeps punching me below the eye. She's beating me down, bothering me. I will give her justice so that she'll not beat me down by her continual coming. It's not because he's got a righteous heart. It's because he's sick and tired of this woman who's demanding justice. This widow that just keeps coming and coming and coming. And the Lord said, hear what the righteous, unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to His elect? who cry to Him day and night. So the elect are represented in the widow. The widow can do nothing for herself. Nothing. 
She's 100% her life is in the hands of an unrighteous judge. The elect sinner can do nothing to save himself if God doesn't work on his behalf. But now the unrighteous judge is not like God. It's, it's this uh, thing of looking at the lesser to the greater. So while this judge is unrighteous, God is perfectly righteous. That's the point of the parable. And will not God give justice to His elect, those who cry to Him day and night? Will He not? Of course He will. Ephesians 1 says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us. Of course, He's going to give justice to us. He elected us in love that He had for His own. And then it says, will He delay long over them? Now, this is difficult translation in the Greek. It either means one of two things exactly how the ESV says it, will he delay long over them with the idea of no, he won't. Or it could be though he delay long over them, I tell you he'll give justice to them speedily. I think here's the point. The reason why Jesus is telling telling them to endure in prayer is because he's not coming right back right now. They need to endure in prayer. It's the idea of 2 Peter 3.9 when he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. The idea is, in Peter's day, he says scoffers will come and say, oh, I thought the Lord was coming. Oh, I thought the Lord is coming. He says he's not slow. He's patient so that all the elect can come in. But he's not slow in being strong-hearted to his believers. For in a moment, he'll come out of the sky and justice will be won. In a moment... It'll come quickly in that sense. But they must endure in prayer, anchoring their hope in Christ. There's a purpose to the delay. You remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.8? For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia For we were so utterly burdened beyond strength that we despaired of life itself. He wished he was dead, that that means. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Any suffering that God allows us to do is meant to remind us of our weakness. And that all of our hope is in Christ who is risen from the dead. 
Revelation 6.10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? First Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How come Jesus didn't punch back? Because he was continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. So Christian, listen. When you throw yourself a pity party for the way you're suffering the injustices of this world, you lose all your saltiness. Your God becomes a pitily little God and you now need to turn to man to right all the wrongs. And this is what we're tempted to do. We're tempted to lose heart, kind of push our Bible away, get bitter, get angry, grab a tribe, and lose all of our saltiness as we become like the rest of the world. It's as if we forget that one day Christ is coming out of that sky. Listen to Psalm 58.10. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, now mankind, this is a lot of non-believers in mankind. Mankind will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. You need to know that. You need to know that everyone in this world will one day say, though I thought those Christians were crazy, there is a reward for the righteous. And there actually is a God who will judge on this earth. You see, if we know that, we can love our enemies. If we know that, though our culture crumbles around us, we can preach the gospel to those who hate us. We can point them to the truth. We can do our best to point them to the Scripture and what makes for a good society. But what we can't be is angry and bitter as though God will not make all things right and as though God is not sovereign. And then he ends the parable with this, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Don't lose heart in praying. But when He comes back, will there be anyone praying? Will there be anyone that heeds the parable? There will be believers when Christ returns. There will be a lot of enemies. The brighter the light shines, the greater the hatred gets. 
The worst atrocities on earth happened when the Son of God showed up on this earth. Because in fallen man's heart, there's a hatred for what's true. But Jesus says to you, Christian, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart, but continue to pray for the coming of Christ. And when you do that, hope will be in your life if you look at your notes. When your eyes are set on the coming of Christ, it helps you live holy lives. It gives you heavenly mindedness. You invest your money in the kingdom of God. You invest your time in the kingdom of God, the things that matter. It gives you a heart for the lost. It gives you a heart for God. So if you're longing for the coming of Christ, health comes into the Christian life. If you anchor your soul anywhere other than Christ, you will be in turmoil. If you've not put your trust in Christ, you only have a fearful expectation of judgment. But the plea that I have for you this morning is to run to the mercy and grace of Christ. And not only run to Him at first, but as first John told us, as John told us in 1 John, to abide in Him. To anchor your hope in Him. Father, You knew that we needed encouragement to stay the course. Father, I pray that our hope would be set in Christ and Christ alone. Lord, we thank You that You are a God who will right every wrong. That the only thing that will be unfair in this world is that the mercy and grace You show us is far beyond what we ever deserve. And so, Lord, help us have joy in the midst of suffering. Help us show love in the midst of hatred. Let us be bold and preach the Gospel even when all sides hate us for it. Let us be willing to stand outside of all these earthly tribes with the Word of God in hand, fearing You above all else. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.